You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day. Thank you for already feeding us um, with the holy mysteries. We're grateful that you've let the power of your word go forth and we've been able together as a community to celebrate your body and your blood and the healing effect that it has by your grace on our whole being. And I pray that today as David and I dive into this topic that you will bless us and strengthen us and we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We had a kind of funny family experience. Um, 2018, we were, um, I had a sabbatical and we went back as a family to to Scotland for um, about five months. And so when we were, we, were, we were back in St. Andrews, kind of our old stomping ground from our early marriage, and we, we attended uh, the Baptist church there in town, um, kind of a thriving church that met in the local school. And believe it or not, they were doing a study on Nehemiah. Um, so while we were there, we'd go to church, we'd have the study on Nehemiah. And, I, and, and, a, a gen- and this is a little bit more of a kind of laid-back contemporary style church. And a, a gentleman from the community, one of the elders of the church, uh, would get up every Sunday. Bring, they, they do children's sermons over there. I don't. I don't know if that's really kind of an American tradition, but they do. But bring the children forward, and and he he'd pull out his guitar, and they would sing this song every Sunday. I'm going to teach it to you right now. <laughs> it went Nehemiah. Trusted God. Nehemiah prayed to God. Nehemiah built the wall. Praise to the Lord. That was it. <laughs> every Sunday. I mean, it was the silliest thing. My first Sunday that I heard it, I thought, oh, man, right? Um, and then by the next Sunday, we started to kind of look forward to it. And before you knew it, we, I mean, this is now a kind of regular... If I were to start that song in our home now, Mary Grace would could finish it right away. Praise to the Lord. I mean, I, this gentleman, by the way, was like an astrophysicist at the university who wrote this. I mean, it's kind of a funny kind of compare and contrast. Um, but that's that's at the heart of it, right? I mean, it's a simple ditty, but it gets to the heart of what we're talking about today. Nehemiah, he trusted God, he prayed to God. He built the wall. Praise to the Lord. It's actually not a bad outline of the whole book of Nehemiah from beginning to end. So I want us to look today, and again, I'm mindful I'm I'm going to dive in here, but I want us to look today at the centrality that prayer plays in the whole book of Nehemiah. From And think about the strategic points at which prayer occurs. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll kind of look at that rather closely this morning. Then Nehemiah chapter 8 after the wall had been built, and then Nehemiah 9 again, when the people renew the covenant in light of God's blessing to them to overcome their adversity and to rebuild the walls again. So you have prayer at the beginning and prayer at the end, shaping and framing the whole of Nehemiah's ministry and the experience that the people of God had together collectively in their repentance before the Lord. So let let me look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now this is Nehemiah's moment. He heard the word from his brother Hanani, and then he wept. So here's the logic that you have in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days. And I continued, now that's an important turn of phrase there, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So this is a posture, and I think it's an important 
thing to recognize about prayer. And oh my goodness, I mean, just so we don't bury the lead here, a few few topics can wrap us up in our own spiritual guilt um, more quickly than a topic on prayer. Uh, But nevertheless, here you have Nehemiah in a moment of personal suffering for his city, who's motivated in that moment in his sorrow to turn to the Lord and to pray continually. So that that's the driving force behind his sorrow. He heard, he wept, he prayed. And the, and the language that's used to describe his praying moment was a continual action of prayer because of the burden that had been placed on his heart. And this is, this is marvelous because Nehemiah 1 actually outlines for us what this continual prayer life of Nehemiah was before he had his encounter with the king who gave him the green light to go back to Judah to build the wall. So here's, here's his prayer. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. So what you have here in verse 5, and I want to work through this all the way to verse 11, what you have in verse 5 is what, what we might call the praise of naming. Nehemiah's prayer begins by naming and identifying the God to whom he's praying. Because as you all know, because you spent time in the Bible, God's name is revealing of his character. When God wants to reveal himself, he reveals himself through the exposition and the unveiling of his own name. This is why you have that little encounter between Moses and the burning bush. And Moses says, well, when I go to them, they're going to ask me, what is his name? What, what do I tell them your name is? You tell them, my name is, I will be who I will be, or I am who I am. And then you go through the whole book of Exodus, and you find the people getting through Sinai, or into Sinai, through their Exodus experience. They sin with the golden calf moment, which by the way, that's going to show up in Nehemiah again. They sin in the golden calf moment, and they meet then God in His judgment and in His mercy. So in that golden calf moment, God gives Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, think of this, an exposition of his own name. Moses asks this unbelievable question. I don't know if any of us would have the courage to ask. I wouldn't. Show me your glory. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's an overwhelmingly frightening thing to ask. Show me your glory. And the answer within the book of Exodus that God gives to that request about the showing and the revealing of God's glory is God comes down and he gives Moses an exposition of his own name. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, And the Lord came down and said, The Lord, the Lord, full of mercy, loving kindness. He visits His loving kindness to the thousandth generation. He's quick to forgive sins. And He also visits sins upon the guilty and the unjust. So what you have is an exposition of God's own name as a revelation of His glory. So to name God is to know who God is in His character, particularly in His saving character toward His people. Think about Jesus in the high priestly prayer in John 17. The night before Jesus moves toward his passion in John 18, what does he say? O Lord, I've revealed to them your name, and yet I will reveal your name to them even more. And which is a kind of interesting thing. that Nobody in that particular moment in time in Jewish history didn't didn't know the name of the Lord. 
um, Jehovah, Yahweh, or Elohim, or some El Elyon, these, these appellatives that we use to describe God, everyone knew those names. So what is it that Jesus is saying? I'm going to reveal your name even more? It's a recognition that God's character, His saving power, His glory is tied up with the revealing of His name. And His name is tethered particularly to, in the Old Testament, the Exodus event, in the New Testament, cross and resurrection. So here you have, by the way, this is, I wouldn't say this is a kind of hard and fast rule that you follow Nehemiah's model of prayer, but it's a great outline. He begins his prayer to the Lord by identifying God according to God's own self-unveiling of who he is. You want to pray to him rightly? Then you pray to him in accord with the way in which God has revealed himself. And here's how God has revealed himself. Verse 5, O God of the heaven, great and awesome God, you keep your covenant and your steadfast love to all those who love him and keep his commandments. And then he turns to verse 6 after identifying God as the covenant keeper, the one who shows steadfast love. This is who you are, God. And then he builds his request. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive. Let your ears be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing, and now he moves from the request, would you hear my prayer? And what's my prayer? My prayer is for your people. That's an important language here. Your servants, those that you have called and named. Lord, I'm asking you to hear my prayer on behalf of them. And then he goes from naming to the request to confession of sin. And listen to the the language here. Um, uh, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, in verse 6, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. There's this corporate sense of a collective identity and also the individual within the collective identity. I have sinned. We all have sinned together against you. We've acted corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. We've not been faithful to you. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Well, you've done that, God. We're all scattered among the peoples now. But you also said, he's quoting Deuteronomy here, but you also said that if we return to you and keep your commandments and would do them, though we are outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name present there. Now this is fascinating because we, we um, and again, I, I'm, I'm mindful of time, but Martin Luther, if you ever read Luther on prayer, Luther has a lot of hard right angles when talking about our prayer life before God. In fact, Luther, in effect, says, we pray to God, number one, because he tells us to. And when you pray to God, you tell God about the promises that he's made to you. In other words, you, you be bold in the throne room before the Lord and remind God, not that God needs reminding, but you tell God the promises that he's made to you. You let him know his promises. This is exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. We didn't follow your precepts. We've been scattered all throughout the world. Here I am in Persia, the capital city of Susa. Here I am in the middle of Nowheresville, vis-a-vis Jerusalem and Judah. And yet you said, O Lord, that if we return to you and repent, that you would draw us together from all the corners of the earth. So you said that, I'm reminding you of that, and I'm asking you now to do it. And so he gives, he reminds God of his promises. And then verse 10, 
He uses the language here again of your servant, O Lord. Let your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and, and give success to your servant today and grant his mercy in the sight of, and I, you have to love this turn of phrase, in the sight of this man. End of prayer. There's no amen here. But we'd say like, in Jesus' name, amen, the end. Or as that one little boy did in Sunday school one time, sincerely yours, Jimmy, right? I mean, however you end it. So he brought his prayer to an end here, and then the next phrase is, oh, by the way, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Who's the man that he's asking for success in the front of? The most powerful man in the known world at the time. Well, let, let me have success in his eyes. And we flip the page, and we see God making good on the promises that he made to his people back in Deuteronomy in light of this confession of sin and faith from his servant Nehemiah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful sort of move from this happened, and then the next page we flip into chapter 2, he's before the king, and the king is giving him the green light to go back to Judah to rebuild the walls, and he's sending in a whole entourage and, 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 and some capital with him to be able to pull it off. So that happens at the beginning. Now, if you're still in there, I need to turn this over to David. When you go to chapter 8, which is after now the walls are built, God's made good on his promise. Ezra is now reading the law before the people. This day is marked as holy in verse 9. And then when you, when you move to chapter 9, the people confess their sins before the Lord. Um, th th again, th this is a pattern that I think we find throughout the scriptures. In the face of God's saving activity... When God does a work in our midst that we could not manufacture or make happen, when you stand at the end of some saving event that God has done for His people, and there's no other response to it other than, God did this. And I'm sure many of you pray that way for people that you love. I know that we do. Lord, do something in so-and-so's life so that at the end of the process they can look back on it and say, we could not have pulled this off. Only the Lord did this. So here they are in this moment recognizing that only the Lord could pull this off. Fifty-something days, they had the walls built now, the infrastructure's back up. It's a remarkable achievement. And what do they do together? They're self-aware again. They're aware both individually and corporately, we're sinners. And they confess their sins to God, they remind God of His saving purposes, and they enter into solidarity together in the knowledge of who they are and in the knowledge of who God is. As David has been sharing so much about the history of our city, as we sort of think about the texture of our city and what, and, and what our, and this is the term that I keep tossing over my own mind, what's the providence of our place and time with the fact that our church is in the middle of the city? As we think about that, the, I mean, Nehemiah does leave, I think, an, an amazingly impressive model for us that at the beginning and the end of all of that kind of conversation demands a heart that recognizes the necessity of God moving in our midst and drawing us into His work. That's kind of our prayer. Lord, Lord show us where you're at work um, in, in this world and in this city. And by your grace, give us a sort of natural move, a, a natural implanting of a call that, that flows from what you're doing, not something that we're generating and making it happen, because then we get to, to congratulate ourselves at the end of that process. No, no, we don't need any more of that. But at the end of the process or at the end of the moment to be able to say, God, you were at work in our midst. Can I leave you with these three thoughts about prayer? Prayer 
number one, keeps our ultimate hopes before us. Again, at the beginning and the end for Nehemiah and for the people of God, their ultimate hope is in God's saving purposes for them. They're reminded of that again and again. And it's all based off the character of God's name. Secondly, prayer grounds us in the truth of who we are and who God is. Who are we? We're sinners in need of a Savior. We're sinners in need of the saving activity of God. And who is God? The one who promises to act in accord with who He is. And who is He? He's a God who's quick to mercy. He can't help it. God acts in accord with who He is, and He can't help but being quick to mercy, to mercy for those who turn to Him in a headlong way. And then the final thing, um, prayer is the language of the dependent. P- people who recognize that they don't have the resources within themselves to live into the call of God on their lives in this world, they turn to God in prayer. Prayer and self-sufficiency are like oil and water. They just they can't survive together. They don't have the breath to sort of survive together. Prayer, by its very nature, is the language of the dependent that turns upward and a gaze beyond ourselves. So with that said, I'll, I'm going to hand this over to Brother Fleming. Thanks. Um, That's such an awesome framing, isn't it? Um, We've talked the last few weeks about our city, given, you know, two weeks of romping through 150 years, which is completely unfair, you know, to try to go through 150 years of history in a a short amount of time. But um, you're really trying to draw out, uh, as we think about our place as a community of faith in our city, um, what, as Mark said, would God have us be doing uh, for this, 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 these purposes, his, and his purposes, and we've talked about the good and the bad and the ugly, as, as there is in all of human history, you know. And uh, but today, I, I want to dive in a little bit to and think about something I think is largely a good about our community, and that is our religious and charitable nature uh, as a as a city. You know, we um, started from the very beginning of the city. It was planned, and they said from the beginning, the planner said we're going to make places for churches. We're going to have plots where churches of different denominations can, you know, have a congregation because they wanted to have a real city, not just a company town. They wanted it to be a real place. And so you see pictures here of uh, kind of the original white churches that were given or uh, or sold uh, land. Of course, the Advent is there. You've got First Methodist, First Presbyterian, First Baptist Church, which is no longer there. The only one of these no longer present in downtown. And then uh, the, the Catholic Church, St. Paul's, and uh, all of these congregations were there really from the almost the beginning but there were other congregations here almost from the very beginning those on the previous slide get a lot of press but then you see 16th street baptist church was originally i'm going to get the original name wrong now that i'm thinking about it, it was um uh, uh first colored congregation or something like that that was very you know labeled you know but then they changed to 16th street baptist when they ended up at uh, where they are now and that's the original building that they built, which ended up having to be demolished and rebuilt in 1905 to the, the building we know today. And then there's Sixth Avenue Baptist, the original Sixth Avenue Baptist Church, which was um, uh, actually originally down where UAB is today. UAB kind of wiped out that you know neighborhood, kind of took over that. And, I, and Sixth Avenue ended up where they are today, out near Elmwood, I think in 1970. But there's a Jewish congregation. This is the original Temple Emmanuel. 
which was uh, basically where Alabama Power's headquarters is now. Uh, that was the Jewish quarter of the city in the beginning. And there's actually one building left over there that's a historic building on the corner that part of the Alabama Power Complex, if you've ever been over there. That was the original Jewish Community Center building, which is now out, you know, on Montclair. So um, uh, that was their quarter. And then um, there were uh, other immigrants. We talked about the immigration to the city that brought Russian Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox. We have the, uh, the, what's the, the sort of Lebanese Catholic um, Marianite. Uh, and, uh, and then here today, now a Muslim uh, community in, in, in Birmingham. This church in Hoover uh, is, is their front. But just a little, a little bit of quantitative data that I'm thankful to my friend Ryan Hankins over at Public Affairs Research Council for helping me with. Um, Jefferson County is a very faithful community, faith-filled community. Um, we are number one in Alabama, ninth highest in the southeast in terms of concentration of, of, of people of faith that claim faith. Um, you know, in Alabama, of course, is, is high also. Uh, if you want to be in a place more religious than Alabama, you got to go to Utah or North Dakota. So those are your options. Um, so take your pick. Um, this, little, this is an interesting way to demonstrate in our community the size of certain traditional sort of makeups. You know, obviously the Southern Baptist is the biggest dot, um, the, but then sort of the, the, the Methodist Church, the National Baptist, which is the African-American uh, Baptist, and then non-denominational, those are also really large. But another way to think about this is traditions, not just the denominations. The sort of evangelical Protestant tradition is huge, of course. And um, uh, then mainline Protestant, black Protestant, they, you see there are a number of congregations and, and adherents. I think this is 2018, 2019 data, so it's not that old, a little old. But then you see other Catholic Orthodox and other, other traditions. To no surprise to any of us, the Southern Baptists by far are the largest uh, grouping of, of, of people. The 229,000 Southern Baptists, um, uh, I'm a former Southern Baptist and I, you know, Mark, at, when I was at Samford, I did something really crazy. I was a history major and I, um, uh, as an elective, I decided to take a Baptist history class just for fun. You know, I mean, I don't, that's not fun for a lot of people, but I, it was interesting. I remember the, the, the professor there sort of saying, you know, the Southern Baptist Church is like the Catholic Church of the South, uh, not theologically, but just because everybody is almost, you know, uh, Southern Baptist. And you see that in our community, you know, we don't have a line here for the Southern Baptist, but um, you see where everybody else is, it's probably hard to see, but um, you've got um, the non-denominational 73,000 compared to 229,000. And then, you know, the National Baptist Convention, Catholic, and then United Methodist, and then it really falls off, you know, heavily from there. And then uh, this this kind of points out there are some non-Christian uh, faiths in this mix. Uh, the Muslim estimate, uh, Reformed Judaism, Conservative Judaism, and um, and the Hindu Temple <coughs> there at the end. <coughs> so um, largely Christian, very heavily Christian, of course, community. We all know that. Uh, but not only is that evident in churches, but you have a lot of parachurch ministries. And this is a dangerous slide for me because there are hundreds of parachurch ministries. There's probably something that you love out there. I didn't put their logo here, and I'm sorry if I didn't. But um, there are a number of parachurch ministries that uh, you know have, have been born out of churches, like campus outreach, and, um, and then there are others that are you know sort of uh, you know like Christian service mission. Others that uh, some are very evangelical in their mission, some are more social service in their mission, but they are opportunities for Christians of a variety of different faiths to kind of come together in and through those 
those things. Then, of course, you have a lot of religious education. These are this is the higher education logos, but of course, we have a lot of schools like Advent and uh, Westminster School, Briarwood, that are also you know you can get your whole education here through Christian Christian education, um, and that's sort of data, uh, but. This is the hard part. This is there's qualitative data and there's quantitative data, and this is where I get out of the quantitative. It's hard to really say what is going on religiously in the community. And I I've only can can tell you just from talking to people. And I've called a number of people that maybe lead some of these parachurch ministries or other ministers and say, you know, what is the state of cooperation amongst Christians and people of faith in the city for impacting the city? And I, thankfully, right now, I'd say everybody said there's something positive going on. There's something in the water right now that is, and it, maybe it's a result of pandemic plus George Floyd, which is, I think, got a lot of especially more white congregations thinking, okay, we need to be thinking more about race relations and having conversations, especially at the pastoral level. A lot of pastors talking, apparently, uh, across denominations, across ethnicities. Um, <clears throat> And it doesn't mean that it's all organized. It's just not incredibly well organized, but there are some some organization to it. And some folks really saying, um, you know, we need to be figuring out how to be more cooperative and impactful in our city across a lot of these traditional denominational walls and things. And so I think that's a good thing. The other side of this, though, is that um, there is real sensitivity to how churches sometimes come into a mission. I think this is, a, as we're thinking about it, a kind of a, a thought or lesson for us, too. Um, you know, there are some churches, and, and if you know, I professionally I work in economic development around the city, and I've worked in downtown, but also neighborhoods. My office actually in Woodlawn, so I'm physically present in Woodlawn a lot. I've been in Inslee and a lot of places. Sometimes there are <clears throat> churches that decide to want to help the city, which is a good thing, but sort of come at it from a place of, um, well, we have a lot of resources, we have a lot of people, we got a lot of goodness in in our hearts and we're going to come in and do this thing our way and those churches have kind of gotten a reputation of uh, being churches that show up to get the photo op and then not really leave any real impact behind and it's more for them and how they're feeling I'm telling you that sentiment is real there are a lot of people that really think that about certain churches especially very affluent churches that have resources to come in and do good things and I think that's that's a, a very uh, something we have to be very cognizant of and thinking about and praying about a lot. But in our, so our particular neighborhood is downtown and, and this week and next week we're, we're going to talk a lot more about what's really going on in our specific neighborhood of downtown. This is north of the tracks and so these are active congregations and there may be more, there may be some house churches and things that I'm not very clear on, but um, <clears throat> there are a number of active you know, congregations in around the Advent um, that, are, that are here and are uh, and are still active and, and doing things. The other thing I want to lead to before we kind of, I'm going to open it up because we're at week three of this six week thing and we haven't had room for dialogue or questions in the previous uh, uh, weeks and so we might sort of just see what's on people's minds and thoughts about this but I believe there's a connection between the religious character of this city which can lead to a lot of division for sure, but I think leads a lot more to generosity and civic engagement and the high civic engagement that people have in our community. Uh, this is a very engaged community, and we've talked about that in history. It goes all the way back. Um, uh, there is almost this, especially in business or whatever, there's this sense that you must not just be here and make your money, but you've got to be involved in uh, the Rotary, the Kiwanis, 
the Junior League, and then United Way. I mean, everybody knows. I was hoping Drew Langley would be here today. I put him on the spot, uh, but he's not. Uh, and some of you may know, I don't know what the current goal is this year for United Way in terms of the millions of dollars they always raise. Somebody here know it? I don't know. It, it's always, our Central Alabama United Way is one of the top United Ways in the world. You know, people give to that in order to help the community and meet needs that are out there. And it's a vehicle through which we do that. And there's almost this sense of obligation to do that. And it, I, I think it's a positive thing. But here's, here's the facts. Um, most charitable places in America, I'm probably not surprising anybody. Here we are, number two on the list of most generous, financially generous communities. Um, and this is, a, this is based on this, this particular group uh, looked at uh, the returns, you know, IRS filings, returns, and how many people were, were giving. And uh, again, uh, Utah, there's Utah again, they're number one. But um, uh, it, it is, it, you look at that and you say, wow, I mean, you know, we are uh, an incredible giving. And if this is just recording our uh, IRS uh, filings, you know, that means there's a lot more generosity going on outside of that, I think. So, um, you know, it, and I, it's no surprise, look at most of the top 10 there, they are uh, Southern or uh, in communities or states that are fairly religious. Um, and, and if you look on that list, I, I, there's a, this is a website you can go to and explore. I, you know, it's pretty clear, it calls it out. There's maps that show, I mean, the Northeast is like nothing. I mean, nobody gives up there it's for some reason. Except for Bridgeport, yeah. Except for Bridgeport Connecticut, yeah. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> apparently Springfield, Massachusetts is like the worst. They're at the bottom of the list. I don't know why they are, but, you know, they, they are. So, <clears throat> so what does this mean for the advent. Well, I told you, we told you at the beginning, I wasn't going to, we weren't going to tell you like this is what we ought to be doing or whatever, but so I, I think in relationship to what we've learned from Nehemiah, as we think about this, we should be praying a lot about it and specifically praying about it. Um, we pray, if you are, are praying throughout the week um, in, uh, in your prayers, your personal prayers, praying for the church, uh, I know many of you are praying for the search committee, and as one of the members of that, thank you. I really appreciate that. We do. We know we, because we feel it. We hear about it. People are praying for the search committee for the dean. <clears throat> Specifically, pray for how the Advent um, helps to impact uh, the, the physical, spiritual fabric of our city. How does this church fit into all that? How do we think about how we're cooperating with other churches and other organizations? How do we, how, where do we best align and do that? And, and have the kind of impact with the humility that we should have and not with a sense of here we are to save the day necessarily, but because we're a part of a greater community. So that would be my call, I guess, is to, to, to pray about that. And we've got about five minutes left, and so I am going to open it up and let anyone, if you've been listening or been a part of this, um, maybe you have um, some thoughts that are bubbling up or some questions. Hopefully you've got questions about Nehemiah, so they all go to Mark. And not to me, uh, but um, anyway, be ready, Mark. But anybody have any anything that they you know want to observe or, or ask about or think about? Yes, ma'am. Preventing us from getting more headquarters here. If we're such a giving community and we do have a very lively community, yet we don't really have headquarters. <clears throat> a great economic development question right here. What's preventing us from having more headquarters here? Well. Um, as you've seen from our history, we grow a lot of great headquarters, but then they often get bought by somebody else that is bigger, that sees value created 
and take them. That's been a real part of our history for over a hundred years. And um, <clears throat> so I am, uh, oh, thank you so much. Um, uh, I am uh, grateful to my wife for many things. Um, <clears throat> so um, I think that one of the, I hate to say this, and I, I've talked about this with our economic development colleagues, and um, there's actually the county and the BBA and REV, we've just all kind of uh, coordinate on a new kind of brand image to help with selling and promoting our community to the world. Uh, and there have been a lot of surveys done on it. Um, <clears throat> one of our obstacles is that we're in Alabama. And a lot of people look at Alabama and they think, I, there's no chance that we would have any see anything of value in our state. They've got to get beyond that and come to Birmingham and see Birmingham. And often that is that changes people's perceptions and they see that Birmingham is this lively great community great quality of life uh, so many things but there is a perception problem that because of just the state we're in unfortunately and that I wish I didn't have to say that but that's been quantified in a lot of surveys of site selectors and people like that that are doing that site selecting um, uh, other than that I think that it is um, um, yeah I think that's a big thing other than that it's just being intentional about it uh, you hear a lot of our workforce evolution has been a really important because we have been a working class city that knew how to make things, but now in the innovation economy, it's a different kind of workforce needed. And we get knocked a little bit on, our, on the ability, availability of workforce in our community to actually meet the future. So I'd say those couple of things. Kathy? Uh, so do you repeat the questions when people ask and we can't hear them back? <clears throat> I will. She was asking about what what corporate headquarters and why we couldn't get more of those. But I'll make sure to do that. Yes, This coffee. is not so much a question, but sort of to expand on what you have said and, and, and answer the question. Based on 25 years experience in an international professional association and about 14 years of being a docent at the Barber Motorsports Museum, the perception of Birmingham amongst people that I have personally engaged is 180 degrees away from what the truth is. Mm -hmm. I have brought people into this city that said, my God, you have trees, you have mountains, mm -hmm. you have green grass, you have lakes and streams. I, think, and I see this in my professional association, but the city of Birmingham, unfortunately, has gotten a very, very bad rap, which <clears> I think you, you alluded to your discussions of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the bad and the ugly are what people remember, and that's what people tell me that they have seen of Birmingham. And what that means is that people like the Church of the Advent, <coughs> like Barber Motorsports Museum, like the Museum of Art, like all of them, like Vulcan, all these cultural amenities that we have need promotion, and they need all of us to cooperate in that promotion. Right, Coffee was talking about the need to promote our city and uh, the fact that in his experience having been done doing a lot of things in international organizations there is this perception that's very different from the reality and um, uh, I think that's true I think that's true and in, 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 I do think our community is doing a better job now through BBA and others on actually trying to be proactive about telling that reality I don't know if y'all saw that um, Y'all may have seen that uh, they paid for a billboard in San Francisco recently because, uh, you know, landing the new startup company by Bill Smith 
technically its headquarters was in, in San Francisco. Well, they've relocated the full headquarters, everything here, to grow 800 jobs, whatever, here. Well, I thought they were smart. They put up a billboard. The landing is moving to Birmingham. Come check us out. You know, like getting people's attention to, to come see us. And um, so um, I, th I do think we, and that's the, the question for us, then what do we all need to be doing about, you know, that uh, perception? Okay, got a couple more? Yes, ma'am. I have a question for Mark. Okay. Okay, I listened to um, Angel Jones reading Nehemiah this past week, and I was struck by the fact that there were a lot of long, long listings of names, like reading the gaps or something. And I'm wondering, was that more just in the tradition of showing who everybody was, or was it more showing that everybody had to take part in the projects for them to go forward or something else? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a feature that is sort of born out of the book of Genesis and carries through all the way to the end that whenever, um, whenever God begins a kind of new redemptive moment, they just start listing off generations. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. It's horrible for people who like reading their Bible because you get to, you know, Chronicles in the first... You know, it can be terribly boring. Uh, Matthew begins this way, Luke begins this way. So there's a, but there's a theological impulse to do that to show that God is at work within the sort of the creaturely realities of the community itself, within families, and he's and he's carrying that on. So the carrying on of a tradition is really important. Not, I, I don't mean this in any way politically. Um, well, I'd be happy to talk about that. But there, there is a kind of conservatism in the Bible in the sense that it, it really respects the tradition that comes before and wants to tether future hope to that which came before, all within the frame of reform. So there's this kind of respect for tradition, but then also a recognition that we need to reform that tradition as well as we go forward. That, that's a kind of philosophical conservatism at, at its best, and I think you see that built within the way in which the Bible leans into these, into these families. Other comments, questions? Well, I would say your history reveals that, that those names that we all remember from the past or growing up, there were people 150 years ago that were the driving force and we <coughs> had to celebrate those names and we need to become the new names that uh, champion our city and champion our faith. It's um, a great comment, David. <clears throat> Do we have a group of religious leaders that meet regularly and discuss and pray for the direction of the city? The question is, do we have a group of religious leaders that meet regularly? I, I, it sounds like there are several different groups, from what I can tell, that you know um, get together um, in different groups and different varieties um, across the racial lines, across um, denominational lines. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that you could say there's this one group, unless somebody knows different, that there's this one group and this is where they all are. But it sounds like there are several different groups around that are, that are doing that more. Um, uh, Christian Service Mission, Tracy Hips over there, leads some together to come together. Um, there are some that meet under the auspices of GBM, Greater Birmingham Ministries. And then, um, uh, I, I don't know, they just sound like there's several, but maybe there's more of that starting to happen, is what it sounds like. So. 
Anything else? <clears throat> well, I'll close us in prayer. Um, dear Lord, we thank you so much for this time and place in which you have put us. <laughs> we thank you for our city, and we thank you for our church, and we thank you for the lessons from Nehemiah. And pray that you would put on our hearts a continued a desire to have a heart for the city as a part of the Advent, and to really look to where you are working and align with that and be a part of that and uh, bring ourselves to you and to your purpose. I, I pray for all of the, the Christian uh, churches and, and people in our city that we would all unify around you, which Jesus made it clear that is how the world will know you, that we are unified and united in um, faith in you and in Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.